You are listening to Disability at the Table, a podcast hosted by public speaker and campaigner Mark Webb that celebrates disability in the workplace. Once a month, you will hear stories of inclusiveness, best practice, and allyship in the PR and creative industries, looking at all aspects of working with disabilities. If you're an individual or business leader who wants a fairer and more inclusive workplace for all, this podcast is for you. Hello, hello, hello. I've already fallen into a habit as I start to do these podcasts of saying good morning, good afternoon, good evening. And I realize I think that comes from the Truman Show. So I I need to stop that. So I think I'm going to start saying hello, hello, hello instead. So today, my guest is actually a lady who I'm looking at on the screen. You'll only hear her on this podcast, but we've never met. And it's one of the joys of Well, there have been a few joys in the last 18 months, but one of the joys of lockdown, of COVID, is making so many new connections and getting to talk to people, if electronically, at least, face-to-face. So I'm going to introduce you to Sarah Hawthorne. She is in our circles, in PR circles, something of a guru. She probably wouldn't say that herself, but I'm going to say it. I think she's fabulous. And I just wonder, Sarah, if you could maybe without, I saw you shaking your head there, maybe without saying the word guru, could you introduce yourself? Let's start in professional terms. Yep, sure. Thanks for having me on. It's lovely to be here. So yeah, as you mentioned, my name is Sarah Hawthorne. I am a charter PR professional and up until recently, I have been running my own PR agency for the last eight years. I've been working in the sort of DEI space for around four to five years now. It's a side hustle, but it's not really a hustle. It's just like a side interest. I'm a mentor for Leeds Trinity University. I've been a lecturer at Leeds Trinity University on digital marketing I've been in PR for too many years to really count now. So my experience is quite broad and quite varied and I've always worked in really niche technical sectors. So, yeah, that's me in a nutshell, really. And I'm very white, middle English, not a huge accent. I'm picking up that you don't come from the Chiltern Hills like me. Where am I picking the accent up from? Originally, I'm from Ayrshire in Scotland. Funnily enough, I was talking about this recently with a friend and I've been down in England for 18 years, so I live in Leeds now, but I have lived all over the UK. Um, I've bounced around over the last sort of 12 years, well, nearly 18 years, to be honest, um, up north. Yorkshire, down south, south coast, west, back up north. But originally, Bonnie, Scotland. Ah, there you go. So you moved a little bit south, but not as far as Watford yet. I lived on the south coast for quite a long time. And then I lived in Surrey. And then, yeah, I had a craving to go back to the north. I needed the north. (laughs) (laughs) So you're halfway, you're migrating. So what I'm always trying to do is, we're calling this podcast Disability at the Table. But I never want to lead with that because it doesn't define us, because we're human beings, we're drunkards, we're hooligans, we're, we tell bad jokes, we do what everybody else does. And by the way, some of us on this podcast are disabled. So I deliberately didn't want to lead down that way. But you, you talked about side hustles. You have uh, something called disability in PR. Could you talk about that? Because there aren't many of us. No. So the Disability PR Network is something that I came up with probably a few years ago now because I have hearing loss. So I have hearing loss, which I've had for a long 
time pretty much ever since I remember really. What I noticed is that there was just no representation of disability in PR anywhere so you didn't see it at events, you rarely saw it in any of the industry publications. I mean accessibility wasn't even remotely a thing back then and I just felt that we needed something within that industry to represent and try and have some sort of support network for those in PR working with, with disabilities and who have disabilities and from there it's kind of grown it's kind of grown slowly and there's a couple of reasons for that but it, at the moment you know I'm looking to develop it a little bit more and progress it but it is really hard because like you say there aren't many of us and actually you know trying to hunt us out <laughs> sounds really grim but you know trying to kind of find people is difficult because a lot of them are buried in organizations that are at junior levels it's a lot, a lot of freelancers because you know there's issues trying to get into this industry and, and agency life in particular. Um, so the network is really set up to support and provide advice and guidance and a place to chat, place to talk, place to kind of share worries and have conversations around working in PR as someone with a disability. So on that point, because we know, and, and maybe we'll have time to get onto this, we know there's a good few secret disabled people in PR who, for wrong and right reasons, have to or feel they have to hide their disability. So where can they find disability in PR? We're on Twitter, so Disability PR on Twitter. And then we've got a website as well, which is disabilityprnetwork.co.uk. Oh God, I can't even remember my address. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fatigue and brain fog for you. But yeah, I'll um, drop that in the notes at the end. No, that's fine. And I guess the second question that came of this, and as I said at the beginning, this is our first time chatting. So I came with some preconceived ideas of you, wondered what difficulties I would face in talking to a person who might not pick up all my messages on verbally. Uh, I might have to make sure I was lip readable. We might have to talk about text underneath all sorts so to me now you have an invisible disability because I come with my preconceived idea that you might talk funny let's be provocative here so can you just talk about here's a preconceived and uh, obnoxious comment for you to push back what's the hell is a person who can't hear very well doing in PR well, my guidance counsellor asked me the same question in school, to be honest. I have never really let my hearing loss stop me doing anything because I've lived with it for such a long time that it is such a part of me that I almost don't recognise it anymore. Like, literally, I wouldn't know what to do with full hearing, basically, because my ears are my ears and they work the way they work and that's fine for me. So I actually originally wanted to go into journalism and I wanted to be a journalist, but my guidance counsellor really tried to talk me out of that at school when I was making choices you know around that kind of 15 16 age and they were like yeah look how are you going to hold interviews how are you going to talk to people so I was like well I'm talking to you so I'm pretty sure I can cope with it <laughs> you know um but that was kind of the attitude back then it's like um, I think you're really going to struggle and they gave me a leaflet for banking now I failed maths so I'm not sure how well they thought that was going to work but never mind but yeah and then like everyone I fell into PR basically through kind of journalism and other media means. And I've had a weird mixed experience, mainly because I actually didn't tell him about my hearing loss. Didn't tell him because I was worried about how they would react and whether I would be treated any differently, anything like that. So for a long time, I didn't mention my hearing loss to anybody that I work with at all. And I kind of just stumbled by it. So when I was little, I was given 
Remember the old analog hearing aids that were really big and boxy? Sex, sexy, yeah, the very brown, sexy. The brown chunky ones they were really uncomfortable. Everything was louder, it was noisier. And I actually just stopped wearing them by the time I got to 13, because I was 13 and who's going to wear those? And I didn't bother with them and I just struggled by and I got by and I put coping mechanisms in place to help me kind of survive. And I kind of, by default, learned lip reading. I didn't realise I was really doing it consciously. But I was in my 20s, a healing therapist had kind of, well, I was talking to her about lip reading. She was like, have you ever done it formally? I was like, no. She did a test with me. She was like, you've actually got pretty good at it just by picking things up naturally. So I'd put all these coping mechanisms in place. And then part of the problems that I have with me is I get a lot of infections in them. I have very small ear canals. They get infected a lot for stupid reasons. And I was ref- when I moved, I was thinking I was living in Surrey and they referred to the audiologist down there. And they gave me new digital hearing aids which were a revelation. And then when I moved back up to Leeds, they gave me another new set, which are called Bicross Aids. So I have one in my right ear and one in my left ear. Obviously, the right ear doesn't work at all. But what it does is transfer sound into the left one and gives me multi-directional sound, which I'd never had before. Wow. So I was just walking around for the first like couple of days, absolutely gobsmacked by all the sound and it was actually really overwhelming for me I, I could only wear them at short periods because the, the sound was just like oh I can hear a pigeon and I can hear footsteps and I can hear someone sneeze over on my right side like it was really confusing so it took a while to get used to and it, I kind of didn't mention anything probably until I was about 30 I didn't mention anything in my workplace at all about it and it was only really because the agency I was in at the time were having a big office restructure and where they wanted to sit me was kind of in a corner with my right side facing out to the room and I was like okay that's not gonna work (laughs) I'm gonna have to tell them because I I would not have had any communication I would have been quite isolated where I was because I was facing a wall facing a wall with my back to a wall and my deaf side would have been out to the whole room and I was like okay I can't sit like this because and it went a lot better than I thought and they actually gave me a phone with a tea loop in it and they switched positions so I was sitting with my left side out and you know they did accommodate it and it was actually okay and it wasn't as scary but that's partly why I then became a lot more vocal so it was a bit, a bit evangelical in that I didn't do anything for ages and then suddenly I was like okay I don't want anybody to feel the way I felt about this. And I'd never really spoken to anyone else in PR who had disability or hearing impairment or anything like that. I'd never come across MDLs at that point. So I didn't know how big a community there was, if there was one. And then I started talking about it more, writing about it more, started getting a few articles published in like industry publications. And it kind of snowballed from there really into the larger DEI work. Well, thank you very much there. And actually, I think you've done some kind of survey which would show up, you know, there's a stat in the disabled community we throw around that is to convey that both as employees and consumers, people are missing out by neglecting us. And roughly 20% of the population, I think of the working population, are disabled in some form or another. And there is no way that is reflected in PR for all work and campaigning and joking and shouting. But I think you did a survey. Could you just run me through the the couple of bits and bobs that you found out when you did that survey? Yeah, I started the survey just because I wanted to get more detailed information. So both of the kind of major organisations of the PRCA and the IPR have State of the Nation reports where they tell you what the makeup of the industry is. And the figures are always really shocking on disability. Over the last 10 years have been like 2%, up to 7% maximum, which is vastly underrepresented. 
but I wanted to find out exactly what was going on there. So this survey is quite in-depth. And one of the questions is, do you, I set out what the Equality Act says in terms of defining a disability. And then I asked participants, using this definition, do you have a disability? Now, 69% of respondents said that they did using that definition. And the follow-up question is that regardless of the Equality Act, do you personally identify as disabled? And that's where it starts getting interesting because only 19% of people said yes. Further, 23% of people said that they prefer not to, but it is helpful to get the help that they need in the workplace. And then 14% of respondents said that they would prefer not to because they feel it would be detrimental to their work prospects and opportunities. So that opens up a whole bunch of other questions for me that I think are worth delving into. The study's still open, so responses are still coming in. But I think it's clearly showing a disparity in whether it's language or how people identify, whether it's person first or sort of identifying as a disabled person rather than a person with disabilities. There's some work insight that, that needs to happen, research that needs to happen, I think, on that side of things. Oh, absolutely agree. And something else that I know you and I have exchanged upon, there's this word, um, and I can blame my MS when I get words wrong, because my brain to tongue to thought process isn't the perfect setup. But there's this word called intersectionality. And for those who don't know intersectionality in its traditional form, it's when there's different bits of or flavors of diversity that intermingle so for example an asian disabled person that's two an asian disabled female person that's three different bits of the diversity equation uh, and all to be tackled and not lumped together and of course you and i are very different intersectionalities is that a word of even the disabled community not because you're scottish there's going to be no scottishism in my comments here but essentially i'm talking to you just before we started recording i saw you get up and walk around which i can only dream of and actually hearing can be affected in ms but is actually a very rare symptom so my hearing well for a 53 year old is pretty bloody good so we are in the disabled 20%. We are both in PR, but we are totally different. And you don't need any ramps to get into a building. And I don't need any captions on any presentation or, or meeting that I go to. So talk to me a little bit about where you feel intersectionality. I said it right again, where intersectionality comes in, in disability. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that it was a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, I think in either the 80s or early 90s. It's been around for a while. And we most commonly hear it in terms of talking about feminism, so intersectional feminism, but we don't really apply it to anything else. And I think if we're talking specifically about PR and marketing, it's kind of where a lot of brands and businesses are falling down, I think, because particularly with disability let's take that as its own sort of entity there's still a lot of othering in that so abled people generally go and I know this term is not correct I don't mean it in this way but they kind of go the disabled community and they kind of other it as one pocket of you know things and that's what they see rather than oh that woman is a mother she has a disability fair enough that is you know a, a black queer woman she has a disability they don't see that first so I think that's where 
it's important with it, to have these discussions about intersectionality within PR and marketing because I think it can really change how we're putting campaigns together, how we are um, perceiving our audiences, and you know if you're building an audience demographic, how you're including disability within that. Because like you say, twenty percent of the population has a disability, and those people are employed, they're unemployed, they're you know part of the LGBTQ plus community. They are mothers. They are, you know, they they're. they're cis white men whatever they, they're everything you know and it's really important that we recognize people have multiple facets and multiple things that they they bring that make them who they are yet I don't think we really fully cater to that in PR at the moment it's still very like well our demographic is you know white women in their 30s for example and that's still quite broad so I think you know white women in their 30s I am one of those and I have you know two conditions I am hearing a pair and I have long COVID which is presenting very much like a CFSME situation at the moment so that is affecting my life and the decisions that I make for example like what I buy and where I go and how I travel all of that is affected by the conditions that I have and there's no real understanding or incorporation of that I think in PR at the moment and that's where intersectionality can sit and I think that's where it can benefit the campaigns and the work that we're doing as as an industry. Yeah so just use an acronym there it might be the wrong term but anyway you said CFSME yeah what did you mean there? Um, so CFS is chronic fatigue syndrome and ME is myalgic encephalitis so the two they're often intertwined I think they are slightly separate conditions but they're often kind of put together and often comes from like having a viral infection it's post-viral syndrome that affects a lot of people in different ways the reason I mention it in terms of long covid is that I've had long covid now for 18 months so it's affecting my life for more than 12 months technically under the Equality Act it would be classed as a disability it isn't yet official but I've had this long term now it's a chronic condition because it's not improving and that's how it is but some of the hallmarkers of those conditions that are, they are presenting as at the moment is fatigue, it's brain fog, it's something called post-exertional malaise. So if I was to do activities, for example, I went for a walk or I tried to do exercise, I'd, I might crash out. And that means like I need a nap, like a two to three hour nap, a wee 20 minute nap. But also you never feel fully refreshed after that. It's not like if you're a bit tired and you don't have these conditions, you can go for a really good night's sleep and actually wake up great. I just wake up tired all the time. I am permanently tired to a point I've never really experienced in my life. So those are what those terminals mean. And there's where we do, we're intersectional, but we do have a crossover in that one of the most common symptoms of uh, multiple sclerosis is chronic fatigue. So there's lots of ways of describing it. I talk about myself waking up with my battery 20% charged. And I, I think that's a fairly good summary. And I think one of the, if we're talking stigma and if we're talking about preconceptions, and particularly I can remember Emmy, you know, Emmy doesn't even get sometimes accepted as a condition. A little bit like long COVID, I see that happening. And and a horrible dismissive cliche can be you're so lazy or get on with it or, you know, other such nonsense. And a little bit like the preconception of certain publications that I won't name that label all disabled people as scroungers. And actually the statistics show that 1%, less than 1% of people are claiming wrongly or naughtily or whatever you call or illegally for benefits. 99% aren't. And they're just trying to 
struggle against the tide and then uh, add to that me or ms or now long covid and being told get on with it no you yeah. can't have a rest and why haven't you replied etc cetera, etc cetera. so that sorry that was just my bloody hell moment but so just to finish on intersectionality i sense a little bit and of course we're two white people talking about this mm-hmm. but i sense that bame is a little bit going out of fashion because again you can just plonk every non-white issue into BAME and think it can all be treated in the same way. And I think that's also reflected, you know, there's so many different issues and unfairnesses, if that's a good word, in the whole BAME diversity argument. And we can't just be plonked together. We need separating out. We're all individuals. We're all human beings. Yeah. And I think the term the term BAME or BME has become increasingly problematic and people are realising that, you know, originally it was used as a short term way of, of kind of putting non-white people together. And they even phrase it's awful. It's like an awful phrasing. It's a really terrible kind of way to put it. But like when you think about it, really, you're talking about black, Asian and mixed ethnic minority people. That is a huge, huge, diverse range of people that were just putting together in one little category and going, well, you are those people. That's a terrible thing to do. Like, if you really think, if you take a step back and actually look at it, no, like we, can, we can't really get away with that. That's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. And we have to start recognising the individuality of people and, you know, different cultures and where people are from and all, the, all that kind of thing. It's really important that we start to have that individualism and that intersectionality as well like it's not one or the other right so i wanted to conclude sarah on not your specific disability but you know there's this word called reasonable adjustment which is what legally you're required to do to help someone with some issues some challenges through their disability or disabilities now i've already talked on these podcasts to Jonathan Hassel, who runs a great company called Hassel Inclusion, and that's all about digital inclusion. And we are, of course, um, in a digital world. Uh, You and I have talked a couple of times in the past about talking to events and talking at events uh, and wanting change and wanting representation. Now, that's great. So I need a ramp and I need access to a disabled loo and there's various things and often a a nice car to get me there if I'm going to talk in person. Now, you have very different needs. So I, I know we often get very polite answers for the poor disabled person when we approach them but often it goes no further than the um, pretending to be nice or sorry that's probably a bit unfair often it's then said with good intentions and they don't get round to it let's be polite so in terms of your gang your needs what could because again we this isn't just them being nice to you or them being nice to me it's neglected employees and neglected potential market and neglected readers and listeners and everything else so for your your gang sorry that's me just plonking you in a gang but anyway for you how should organizations how could they make them better and therefore win more business oh that's a big question isn't it so I think I've always struggled with the term reasonable adjustments anyway because I think it leads people to the position of we have done you a favor by doing this this is our basic legal obligation and we've met it 
be thankful and be grateful. I think that is the attitude that comes with that a lot of the time. Not always, but a lot of the time. So I really struggle with it in organisations anyway. But in our industry specifically, I have had a lot of email exchanges with different people over the years. Some of them have been really positive and steps have been taken. And I am so grateful to those people for doing it. But there are organisations who run events regularly that I have had conversations with more than once about accessibility and inclusivity and what that looks like and not just captions but maybe a BSL interpreter or how to make them more inclusive in terms of providing slides before events so people with visual impairments can have a chance to review the slides about how they present as well you know what to do during a presentation so if, if you've got a graph and a screen for example and you say oh, the, the graph on the left but I might not be able to read what that graph says so can you just tell me a bit more in detail or provide another means for me to get to it there's there's multiple facets to accessibility and inclusion in that kind of situation but there's also this idea of being a helpful activist which I've, I'm seeing more and more and you know I've been doing this like quite a few years now and there's this idea that I have to be helpful all the time. Like I have to provide the answers and I have to provide the guidance. And I, there's a level at which I am willing to do that. I am happy to do it. But at the same time, if I have to tell you three times or call you out three times as to why this is not happening, there's a point at which I am not going to be nice about it anymore. I can't be because you need there's no action. And yet you say the intentions are sometimes great, but we're at the point intentions are not enough. It has to be action. It has to, there's no other way to do it. That has to be action. And I can't continue to just have that dialogue and engage with that dialogue if it's obvious that nothing's going to happen from it. So if you're not going to take the steps to make your event inclusive, I can't help you any further. Like you have to do that work. And it's. I think that's what I'm starting to see a bit more. And as much as I'd love to be really polite and happy with everybody, at the end of the day, if I can't participate in your event fully because I cannot hear the speakers and there's no captions for me, why am I going to pay however much money for that ticket? It's, it's exclusionary and it makes no sense. The thing about it is it makes absolutely no sense for organisations to do it. If you are trying to generate income and profit from your events, then make them inclusive because it benefits absolutely everybody. Even at a basic level, and I'm focused on captions here because obviously that's, something that helps me. There are plenty of other inclusive measures you can take. It helps everyone. If you've got a bad internet connection, if you've got kids running around you screaming or roadworks going outside your house, captions will help you participate more fully in an event, regardless of whether, like me, you have hearing loss or not. So there's a point at which you go, I don't understand why this doesn't make sense to you anymore because I've had that discussion. And I think there's certain organisations that are making that difference and that's starting to happen but it's so slow it's so slow and it isn't new I think that's the thing for me this is not a new discussion we've been having these discussions for quite a long time now at what point do you say right we're going to do it and I think it's probably important to point out at this point as well I know I'm going on a bit here but I think cost is a major issue and I know that these things can be expensive. So hiring a BSL interpreter can be expensive. But you know what? It's a really specialised skill. It's a really complicated thing to do. And it's a highly prized skill. You know what I mean? And as an organisation or sort of an industry that continually is trying to prove its value and say, no, we do have value, to then say, well, we don't think that service has enough value for us to pay for it. It's a little bit ironic to me, to be honest. So... I know that cost can be an issue, but at the end of the day, if you've got sponsors from an event, 
get your sponsor to sponsor your accessibility. Make that a sponsorship feature if you want. There are ways and means to do it. And I think hiding behind cost is is not an acceptable answer anymore. Quite right. BSL, just what does BSL stand for? Uh, British Sign Language. British Sign Language, sorry. I, I did know that. Uh, I was just uh, asking to be correct there. Well, that's brilliant. As usual, and that's the pain of intersectionality, I'm learning stuff. I now have to go away and blooming well research. Just before we came on this call, you told me that I can find captions at a setting to put captions on our Zoom calls. I'm going to go away and instantly do that. Thank you very much. And you talk about cost, and that is sometimes a necessary, well, I was going to say necessary evil. It's a necessary requirement. There's an awful lot of things that can be done for free or very cheap, aren't they? It's just automated on your blooming laptop or your iPad. So there's an awful lot that people can do. It's all Googleable. Sarah can consult with you for an enormous fee if you'd <laughs> like. But yes, there's an awful lot you can do so easily. And I, I think for sponsorship for companies doing the right thing, why not Blumenek? Anyway, yeah. Sarah, is there anything else you'd like to nag about, shout about, sign language about without any visual aids before we finish? I think for me, you know, I think things are changing. And I know that I have had a bit of a rant on this podcast, but things are changing. People are listening and progress is just, progress is slow. And I think as someone with an extra accommodation needs, of course, I want it to happen faster because actually it means I'm more included in society and you will feel that as well. You know, there's a point at which it happens so slowly because the able community don't see the need for it to rush it it's just like yeah we'll get round to it whereas for us it's a very different perspective isn't it it's like we absolutely need this to participate in society that is what disables us as society not our impairments or conditions or disabilities we have and uh, you know progress is slowly getting there and you know I've had some really great conversations with a couple of people recently and the results of that should be should be kind of being announced hopefully quite soon um, as to big steps, a couple of big steps that have been taken to really help our industry. So I would say like, don't be put off by it as well because yes, there is a lot to accessibility and inclusion and that's only one aspect of the whole discussion. Don't be put off by it. You won't get it all in one hit and you're not going to do it overnight. But we are at the point where we have to start doing something and even if that is a basic something, just the effort. And we do notice, that's the thing, I think, you, I don't know if you agree, but we, we do notice when effort's been made. Oh, yeah. Because it's so rare. And that's the thing, it's so rare to see it sometimes. You're like, oh, they, they put alt text on the thing, great. There's captions on that, you know, on that, on that video. There's a transcript window, whatever it is. We do notice it because it's still quite a rare thing to see. So do it and do it for everybody. And, you know, accessibility is for everybody. It's not just for people who have extra accommodation needs for whatever reason. It does benefit everybody. And therefore, if we're talking about PR and, and customer base and, and, and you're being more inclusive across the board, why wouldn't you do that? You are more likely to be inclusive of all society just by taking these steps going forward. These basic steps. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So thank you very much. But yes, we are at the stage where if you're an organisation who does the right thing now, you're still at the stage where we will give you huge shouts out because at the moment you're still the exception rather than the rule. And we will be grateful. We shouldn't have to be grateful, but we will be right now because it's just painfully slow getting there. 
painfully slowly. Sarah, thank you so much. I'll put in the show notes about the survey and about how you can contact disability in PR and bits and bobs other waffle I'll put in. But what a lovely chat. Lovely to finally meet you, Sarah. And thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for joining us this week on the Disability at the Table podcast. You can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs, and events. We'll be back next month with a new episode.